If you're a visitor, welcome to the book of Revelation. We are working through this book at the moment. The book of Revelation contains a series of visions that were given to the Apostle John for the church throughout history. So this book, strange as it may read to us when we first look at it, it's not a book full of weird stuff for people who are interested in that kind of thing. This book contains truth that we need today. It's for the church throughout history. Last week, John described what he saw in one of the early visions. He described the problem of the unopened scroll. In his vision of the throne room of heaven, he saw a scroll in God's right hand. That scroll was sealed with seven seals. That scroll represented the plans and purposes of God. It's his will for the rest of history. The problem was that in order for God's will to be known and carried out, someone had to be found who was worthy to open the scroll. If the scroll stayed sealed, God's purposes would remain unfulfilled. But thankfully, a worthy individual did appear. The Lamb of God, who died to purchase people for God, and then rose triumphant over death. The Lamb who was slain is Jesus Christ. He's both the representative of creation who died for our salvation, and he's the divine son of God. He shares all of his father's holiness and power. And in the part of the vision we looked at last week, John described how this risen lamb went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And we are to assume that happened when Jesus rose from the dead and returned to his Father's side in heaven. And now, in the passage we're going to come to this week, the Lamb is going to open the scroll he's just taken from the Father's hand. The rest of the book of Revelation is going to disclose the contents of that scroll. It's going to reveal God's purposes for the rest of history. From the time of Christ's resurrection to the day when he returns. The day when he finally crushes all rebellion and sets up the new heaven and earth. That's what the scroll contains. But we need to think for a moment about the way these purposes of God are going to be presented to us. Because if we expect to read chapters 6 to 22 and find a step-by-step chain of events described for us, then we're going to get ourselves into an awful muddle. What I mean is, it doesn't work to read the book like this. As if it's giving us a straight line through history. Where the events described in chapters 6 and 7 take place, then the events in chapters 8 and 9, then the events in chapters 10 and 11 and so on. This book will make very little sense if we try to read it as a continuous line leading us from Christ's resurrection straight through to his return. 
So then, what is going on in chapter 6 to 22? Well, what we're going to find is these chapters actually take us over the same ground several times. They do describe the time between Christ's resurrection and return, but instead of describing it just once, they lead us through it again and again. How do we know that? Well, the best way to see it is to read it right through for yourself. And when we do, we begin to notice things like this. For example, the fall of Babylon is described multiple times in chapters 6 to 22. We're also told multiple times about the kings of the earth gathering for war against God. The final outpouring of God's wrath is described several different times. And so is the final salvation of God's people. This book takes us to the end again and again. And so rather than giving us one straight line through history, these chapters actually give us a series of parallel lines through history. Like this. The reason these lines on the screen are getting thicker each time is because each time the book takes us to the end, the intensity levels go up a little bit. It's not just simple repetition. Each time through, God's judgment and God's blessing are described more vividly for us until they both reach a climax in the very last chapter. So what we're being given is a series of not just parallels, but progressive parallels. Each time that we cover the same ground, something new is added to the picture for us. Some of you, in fact many of you, are reading the little book by Richard Buse. And he suggests that we think of layers of color being added to a picture. One layer of color added at a time until finally the picture is complete. And that helps us understand the purpose of the repetition we're going to see. Each time through, we're showing a little more of what's going on. The picture builds up little by little. And that allows us time to find our way into this gradually, instead of being overwhelmed by getting the whole thing all at once. One writer puts it like this. No one description or apocalyptic vision can do justice to the all-encompassing activity of God as he puts down the cosmic rebellion and saves his people. No one word picture could suffice to convey the totality of the brilliance and the gloom, the glory and the horror, the joy and the dismay of the day of the Lord. Each series of visions is built upon by the next until the desired effect is achieved. What he's saying is, if we were shown everything all at once, it would be like trying to drink from a fire hose. We would not get much out of the experience except a sore head. And so the big picture is given us a little bit at a time. Each time we cover the ground, we see things we're familiar with from before, 
and new things will be added. And as I said, the best way to see what I'm getting at is to read through the rest of the book for yourself. I encourage you to do that. Don't just take my word for it. Test what I'm telling you. But hopefully you can see why we needed to stop and think about this now. It makes a major difference to realize we're coming to a series of progressive parallels. So with that introduction, we're ready to jump into chapter 6. As the Lamb begins to open the scroll. If you're using a church Bible, it's page 1237. And in the large print, 1919. John says, I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come. I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. When the Lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. When the Lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, A kilogram of wheat for a day's wages, and three kilograms of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and the wine. When the lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a quarter of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red. And the stars in the sky fell to earth as figs drop from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up. And every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, 
hid in caves among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can withstand it? This is God's word. In chapter 5, we saw the Lamb take the scroll from the Almighty's hand. And now in chapter 6, verse 1, John says, I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Now, in reality, if you were holding a scroll sealed with seven seals, you couldn't really find out what's in it until all seven of the seals were broken. But remember, this is a vision. It's a picture. It's not worried about the little details of how real scrolls get opened. And so here in chapter 6, verse 1, In fact, throughout chapter 6, as each of the seals is opened, more of God's purposes are revealed. And not only revealed, but actually carried out. Remember what we heard from Jesus earlier in John's Gospel. God the Father has entrusted all judgment to God the Son. He has given the Son authority to judge. And so as the Lamb opens the seals, he's also putting God's purposes into effect. In chapters 4 and 5, John was shown the throne room of heaven. Now, he's about to be shown earth from the perspective of heaven. We're going to be shown how history looks from God's throne. Richard Buse says we are given a panoramic view of history. But this is not history as it looks to you and me. This is how it looks from God's perspective. And the first thing we are shown is the four horsemen. Four tastes of wrath. If you've ever heard of the four horsemen of the apocalypse, now you know where they come from. The lamb opens the first seal. And John says in the middle of verse 1, Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come. I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. In order to understand these horsemen, we have to be clear where they come from. They are sent from God's throne. The living creatures here are the living creatures we met in chapter 4. The ones round the throne of God. And each of the horsemen is summoned from God's throne. Come. These horsemen are under the authority of the Lamb. Some commentators have wondered if the first horseman might be Jesus himself. And they say that because they notice that later on in the book, Jesus does appear on a white horse in chapter 19. But that's a different vision. Here, in this vision, Jesus is presented to us still as the slain lamb on the throne. 
Here he is commanding the horsemen. He's not one of them. So who is this first horseman if it's not Jesus? He represents military conquest throughout history. When Roman emperors were victorious in battle, the Senate allowed them to ride back into Rome on white horses or in a chariot that was drawn by white horses. The white horse is a symbol of victory in battle. And the crown also represents victory. The first horseman represents the conquering empires of history. This is expansionist militarism. Think of the Romans expanding their empire. Think of Hitler in the last century trying to gobble up Europe and beyond Europe. We might even think of Vladimir Putin today. Again and again through history, human ambition leads powerful men to try and subjugate other nations. Verse 3. When the Lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. This horseman brings civil war. I grew up in something not too far from that in Northern Ireland. People from the same country, born just streets apart, fighting and killing each other because of political divisions. Civil war often follows from military conquest. Again, we could think of the Ukraine today and what's going on there. The expansionist ambitions of Russia are causing Ukrainians to take sides against one another. It happens again and again through history. Verse 5, Then the Lamb opened the third seal. I heard the third living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, A kilogram of wheat for a day's wages, and three kilograms of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and the wine. This horseman brings famine. His scales are for rationing food. Historians tell us the prices quoted here are roughly eight times what was normal at this time. So food shortages have led to 800% inflation. A kilogram of food was reckoned to be a day's food for one man. But here he can only buy enough wheat to feed himself. There's no extra money to buy for his family. He can get a bit more if he goes for the lower quality barley. But when it comes to buying luxuries like oil and wine, forget it. 
Those things are apparently available, but no one can afford them. I think that's what's behind the phrase, do not damage the oil and wine. The sense is, leave them alone. They're too expensive. And again, throughout history, famine also often follows on the heels of military conquest and civil war. To some degree, these are knock-on effects. Verse 7. Then the Lamb opened the fourth seal. I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death. And Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a quarter of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. The fourth horseman is named directly. His name is Death. And we're told Hades follows close behind him. Hades is the realm of the dead. Sometimes it's translated as the grave. It's not the same as hell. In the Bible, Hades is an intermediate place where those who die outside of Christ go to await the final judgment. Death is the fourth of the horsemen. He comes along in the wake of the other three. To kill by sword, famine and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. And so the fourth horseman represents what we could call unnatural death. These are not deaths that are caused by old age. These are deaths that cut life short. In a sense, he reaps the results of the first three horsemen. But you notice two more killers are added here, plague and wild beasts. Altogether, it's a pretty comprehensive picture of untimely, violent death. Throughout history, these four horsemen will ride to all four points of the compass. Their effects are experienced all over the world at one time or another. But notice in the middle of this bleak picture, we're told the reach of the four horsemen is limited. They're given power over a quarter of the earth. That is not telling us about land mass. It's not telling us they're only going to hit certain countries. It's telling us the majority of people throughout history will not be touched by the horsemen. Most people don't die violently in war. They don't die from starvation. They don't die from Ebola. And yet, millions throughout history are claimed by the horsemen. Think of the numbers who died from plague in the Middle Ages. Or those who died in the two world wars. There was hardly a village in England escaped the touch of the first horsemen. Most villages lost people in those wars. So how are we to understand what we read here? Well, we might not like the answer, 
but we can't avoid it. The text tells us these four horsemen are summoned and sent by heaven's throne. Now that is not all there is to say about what we read here. At one level, all of this death and deprivation takes place because of human sin. Military conquest is driven by human lust for power. Civil war rises from prejudice and from desire for revenge. Famine is often the consequence of human greed in other places. And very often disease is able to spread because of unjust government. A history of wasted resources has left an area badly equipped to respond to outbreaks of a virus when it comes. And so if we ask what causes all of this, it is perfectly correct to say human sin and evil causes all this. Rebellion against God causes all this. These are the consequences of abandoning God's wisdom and ignoring God's commands. These are the consequences of people throughout history trying to be God. It produces a horrible mess. That is true. It is entirely accurate to say that. And yet, it's not the whole picture. The book of Romans gives us another part of the picture. It tells us this. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Notice that's in the present tense. That is happening now. Have you ever wondered what that means? Have you ever wondered how God is revealing his wrath today? The four horsemen give us the answer. They tell us part of God's wrath against human wickedness is delivered by human wickedness. Throughout history, God does not often show his wrath by zapping people with lightning bolts. But he may show his wrath by letting evil men run loose. Letting their evil schemes run their course. Letting human beings feel the consequences of human pride and greed and rebellion. Yes, evil men will be held accountable for their evil. Of course they will. It's not like they're little robots God is using against their will. No, when human beings do evil things, they're doing what they want to do. It's their choice. And God will hold them accountable for it. But that doesn't alter the fact that terrible results of human evil can be an expression of God's wrath. Sometimes God's wrath against human evil is delivered by human evil in the form of military conquest or civil war 
or any number of other things. That is what Revelation chapter 6 tells us. Maybe you hear that and you think, well, that's not fair. And you're right, it's not fair. It's not fair that only a quarter of the earth feels God's wrath. The whole of the earth deserves it. If this was the full extent of God's wrath, then we could say it's not fair. The wrath brought by the four horsemen doesn't come close to the wrath the world deserves. The four horsemen are delivering the restrained wrath of the Lamb. God's wrath is his just, steady opposition to evil. He would not be God if he ignored evil. Like it didn't matter. You and I know evil matters. The society around us knows that evil matters. Why do we insist on making old men go on trial for sexual offenses they committed decades ago? It's because we know justice matters. We know people ought to be held to account for the evil they do. It doesn't matter if they got away with it 30 years ago. We realize they shouldn't be allowed to get away with it forever. If we know that, how much more does God know it? And the Bible tells us there is no greater evil than withholding worship from the one who deserves all of our worship. The Lord God Almighty is worthy, and the Lamb is worthy to receive honor and glory and praise. It is evil to pour out that honor and praise on lesser things, on ourselves on material things, on human powers. And so the wonder of Revelation 6 is not that God pours out his wrath in human history. The wonder is that he pours it out in such a restrained way. You and I might have trouble grasping that, but it's very well understood in heaven. Because as the four horsemen ride out, the question that's being asked in heaven is not, why are you doing this, God? The question is, why are you not doing more than this, God? Look again at verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. Remember, in his vision, John is still standing in heaven. 
In the previous verses, he's been looking at earth from heaven's perspective. But these verses describe what's going on in heaven as the horsemen ride out. The altar has not been mentioned before. And we know an altar is a place of sacrifice. These souls in heaven, we're told, are under the altar. That seems to be a way of telling us they are under the protection of the slain lamb. They belong to him. His sacrifice protects them from God's wrath. Now that does not mean life on earth was plain sailing for these people. These particular individuals were martyred for their allegiance to Jesus. In verse 9, they were slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. Their faithfulness to Jesus has brought human wrath down on them. We're going to see again and again in this book, the Lamb's witnesses are not promised protection from human wrath. But they will never face God's wrath. And here the reaction of the slain witnesses shows that the four horsemen are only bringing foretastes of God's wrath. The witnesses cry out, How long until you avenge our blood? When are you going to bring justice on human evil? When are you going to bring judgment? And we might hear that and think, well, isn't that what the four horsemen are doing? But the point is, these witnesses can see God is restraining his wrath. As intense as it seems to us, it's incomplete. Many evil people are still prospering. Many people hold their middle finger up to God and yet they seem to sail through life without a care in the world. Three quarters of the earth are untouched by the horsemen. Including many of those who are making the other one quarter suffer. And so the witnesses cry out, How long, sovereign Lord, until you show your holiness and your justice in a complete way? These witnesses know if God does not bring genuine justice, then he is not genuinely holy and true. If he doesn't bring justice, then ultimately there is no justice. And notice they're calling for justice on the inhabitants of the earth. That is quite a specific phrase in Revelation. It's used throughout the book to speak about those who are in rebellion against God, those who refuse to trust in the Lamb. And so when you read that phrase in the book, it's not a neutral label. These are people who are living in defiance of God. But look what these witnesses are told in verse 11. Wait a little longer. It's not time for justice yet. Why not? Well, they're told to wait until the full number of their fellow servants are killed. They're being told that God is going to restrain his wrath even while more and more of his people suffer death for their witness to Jesus. Why? 
Because as the Apostle Peter tells us, God is patient. He does not want anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. God only sends the four horsemen because he is patient. He gives men and women time to acknowledge their guilt and turn to him for mercy. In fact, the four horsemen's activity ought to make us run to God for mercy. If they represent his restrained wrath, who wants to face his full wrath? The slain witnesses remind us God's full wrath is being delayed. But it will not be delayed forever. Look at verse 12. I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red and the stars in the sky fell to earth as figs drop from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can withstand it? These verses describe the day of wrath. They describe the day when God's wrath will no longer be delayed or restrained. It will be poured out in full measure. Verses 12 to 14 are bringing together a whole cluster of passages from the Old Testament. All of them speaking about the day of God's wrath. These verses are taking us to the end of history. And they describe massive upheaval in the cosmos. And in the midst of it all, look who's running for cover. These are the inhabitants of the earth we heard about earlier. All of those who have refused to turn to the Lamb for salvation. And you'll notice this list includes people from every class of society. There are no exemptions here for rich rebels or for poor ones. The rich and the mighty must face God's wrath alongside the slaves. All together, they run for cover. But there's no cover to be found. How could rocks and caves hide them from the wrath of the Lamb? And so they cry out, who can withstand it? Literally, who can stand? Maybe our money helped us to escape from the four horsemen. Maybe our wits allowed us to skate away from the trouble they brought. Maybe our connections helped us to stay out of their reach, away from war, famine, and plague. 
But now the horsemen are gone. Now the wrath of the Lamb has come. What good are money or wits or connections now? Who can stand? Maybe we think that our good lives will enable us to stand on that day. But that's not what the Bible tells us. The message of the Bible is that the only way to escape the wrath of the Lamb is through the blood of the Lamb. Next week, we'll be showing those who do escape the wrath of the Lamb. And it's not their good lives that allow them to stand before God's throne. It's the fact that they've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. They have found mercy and forgiveness by trusting in his death in their place. So the message is this. We either come to the Lamb today for mercy, or one day he will come to us in wrath. Today is the day of his patience. There is mercy available today. If we will come to him and say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Then when that future day comes, we will not face his wrath. You and I are living in the world of the four horsemen. Now, we might not never experience war or famine or plague. But all of us experience some kind of fallout from human sin. That's what it's like to live in a world that's under God's wrath. We can't escape from this world. But we can prepare today for the final day. If we belong to the Lamb, we will stand on that day. We will meet him face to face, not as our judge, but as our savior and our friend. And so long as he delays that day of wrath, we are called to be his witnesses to the rich and the mighty and to everyone else. In a moment, we're going to sing. And we can use these words to remind ourselves where our hope lies. Maybe you can use them as a prayer. Committing yourself to Jesus for the first time. He is the only one who can make us stand. So let's join in singing together, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness.